0: community as a discipline, but it's surprising as I've studied and looked into it, Arthur Chris, um, it uh, it, it truly is an amazing opportunity uh, as a spiritual discipline to be in community. Uh, The verse that I uh, start out with this thing on community is that of Ephesians 4, where Paul says this. He said, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is... uh, This is a a, a great verse on the idea of that it is a community of people that God has gifted us as individuals to the body of Christ for something that we bring to the body that builds the rest of us up. This is one aspect of the importance of every one of you. That You can't say to yourself that I'm not that important. Um, God has you in the body and you've been given to play a part and that part that you play builds all of us up. Uh, and that truth is conveyed here in this verse. Um, on the thing of, of the discipline of community, Uh, I want to differentiate something. You know, after church, um, we all uh, get up and we're talking and and we're um, speaking with one another. We are exhibiting, as you were just a moment ago, the fellowship that comes amongst believers. That we have a social interaction and we can share with one another. The discipline of community is different from that. It's not saying that one is superior to the other. I think all are needed. But just standing around and talking, and, you know, talking about Best Night's Best game or talking about your kids and grandkids, that is a good thing, but that is social interaction. The discipline of community is a different thing. And my hope this morning is, is that I can lay that out and let you see the difference between fellowshipping with people, and being in the discipline of community. Um, When we talk about spiritual disciplines, the guy that I really like reading on that is Dallas Willard. Um, And uh, Willard has this definition of a spiritual discipline. Um, A discipline is something that I do. It's my part in the process of spiritual transformation come to the topic of sanctification, of our making ourselves holy, that is something that we and God work together to see accomplished. My salvation is completely done by God. The glorification of my body when I see Jesus will be completely done by God. But sanctification, the process of becoming holy, is something that both I and God take part in. And disciplines, then, are in in the process of spiritual transformation, are the activity that is within my power, something that I do that brings me to the point where I can do what at present I cannot do by direct effort. Now, that's a complicated sentence, and I, I, I want to unpack it a bit for you here. There are, um, let, let, let me start with a sports illustration. Um, shooting a free throw in basketball is a discipline. Um, it's not free-flowing like in the game where you just throw stuff up or whatever. You get to stand at the line, collect yourself, and attempt to put the ball through the um, it is not an easy task. I, I marvel at U of A games where they they have these people come out for drawings to shoot baskets. And some of these people, I don't think, have ever held a basketball before, <laughs> uh, because their ability or their technique of trying to put the ball up is you just sort of, oh, I'm so sorry that you're trying that in front of 14,000 people. <laughs> Go to a park and be by yourself. <laughs> um, it is not an easy task. And people think, well, I can just pick up a basketball and put it through the hoop. The truth of the matter is, no, you cannot. To be able to do that well is going to require discipline. I remember in the old whack days, uh, in, in the U of A playing in the whack. Uh, there was a, a guy from the University of Utah. This is in 1971. He led the nation in free throw shooting. Shot 96% of his free throws, which is huge. Uh, so out of 100 free throws, he'd make 96 of them. And uh, this is in a game situation. And I read about it, and what he would do is every day after practice, he'd do the practice, the coach would have everybody shooting. Free throws and practicing their game. At the end of practice, he by himself said to himself, I am going to shoot a hundred free throws in a row, and then I'll go home. And he had one of the trainers stay with him and he would stand at the line and he would start shooting. And he would shoot and shoot, and if he got to 87 and missed one, he'd start over at one, shooting until he got a hundred in a row. Now, folks, that's discipline. (laughs) That is what a discipline is. It is something that I am going to do and work on to get better at And it requires work. It requires effort. It it requires a commitment. See, a spiritual discipline is not something we're doing to win God's favor. We are doing the discipline for our sake to be better at something than we currently are. We're we're, we're not earning, you know, brownie points with God that he'll like us better or not. He loves us completely and totally whether we practice disciplines or not. But like any parent with a child, you want your child to learn to discipline themselves, to grow up and to become mature. And God wants the same with us. So the discipline is a practice that I use, that I do right now, to reach a point where I can do something that I cannot do well now. So there's the now and the future. And the discipline is, I am doing this so that in the future, as he says, that I can do what I at present cannot do by my effort. You want to learn to shoot a free throw? You need to take up the discipline of practice and start practicing and I guarantee you shoot 10,000, 12,000 free throws, you will shoot better free throws then than you do now. So that's that's this point that, that um, Dallas Willard is making. It is a discipline that I'm using now to make me help me arrive at a place where I can do something that I can't do now. Now, The discipline of community. I'm going to start with my definition of community and then we're going to go on from there. Um, I am saying the discipline of community is a small group. Uh, Sunday morning, this is a time of celebration. This is a time where we worship and glorify God for what he's done. We are a community in the vineyard, in, in the greater sense, but the discipline of community is going to be done in small groups and it's small groups that come together that are open to the truth and willingly reflect the truth to each other so that's the definition I'm starting with that it is small groups that gather together to reflect truth and speak truth to each other and it involves several things I'll go in depth on these later Uh, but there's the need to meet together so Hebrews talks about um, that we are to come together to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together I would challenge you to think are you in a small group Are are you meeting with a group of other believers who can reflect and speak truth to you and to help you understand more about yourself and and the others in the group. Uh, It involves truth sharing. That the truth is spoken there. Uh, It involves confession. That we confess our sins to one another. And it, it, it involves forgiveness. It involves within the group that we forgive one another. Again, The truth sharing Ephesians four, speaking the truth in love, confession that you have James that we are to confess our sins to one another, forgiveness Colossians three that we are to forgive one another just as in Christ God has forgiven us. These are the activities that take place in what I am am calling a the discipline of community. Now, we're going to stop here a second because I'm going to ask Tasha if she would come up and share um, about her experiences in community. So, Tasha, please.
1: Um, I just really appreciate that. Uh, another one-on-one that I have is with my roommate at home, um, and just the way we can have time out in the middle of the day, or in the—I well, guess one can is working but like in the evenings, um, And just uh, five minutes, where we're sharing about something that we learned that day, and it's—it's it's not just something that we learned in the day, but it's something that then is like a learning point.
0: of a discipline. Something that I do now that will help me to do what I cannot do in the present will help me to do it in the future. Remember the present? So, in the discipline of community, what are the things that we naturally do not do well now that we need to grow in? And there are several that I think of. The first is the ability to see my own sin I don't think that um, we naturally see our sin well. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9, uh, one of those very encouraging verses in the, in the Bible that everybody wants to memorize, that says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Here's the encouraging thing about our fallen nature. We lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves lies. We think, no, no, you know, we, it, it's other people who lie to us. The truth of the matter is we lie to our own selves. I've worked with high school students for 40-plus years, and it's amazing. I've had this happen scores of times where a young man or a young woman will come to me, and they're in love. They have found the person that they love. And um, in talking with them, it's encouraging to hear them speak of it. And I will oftentimes ask them, particularly if they're believers, is this young man or a young woman a fellow believer? And scores of times they'll say, no, but God wants me to evangelize them. And I think, wow, we've got a heart that's lying to ourselves here that God says this is an issue of wisdom about not being in a romantic relationship with someone who's not a believer. But what we'll do to ourselves is that we'll do things and we'll then justify to ourselves a noble and righteous reason for why we're doing it. And that's part of the problem that we all have. It is one of the things that I don't think we do well without discipline, which is that we tend to trust what we say about ourselves. And we lie to ourselves. Second thing is this. Our lives are like stories. I do this with the seniors at at, at Desert. I have the seniors tell me, what are all of the elements of a story? And I'll get things like, you know, a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's an author. There's, there's characters. There's a hero or a heroine. Uh, there's conflict. There's resolution. A nuance, um, there's a plot. All of these elements of story. You know men and women? your know life is a story. You have a beginning, a middle, and an There's an author. There is a main character in your story. That's be you. And in... in and, and on top of that being character it's filled with all other very interesting characters some really crazy ones primarily in your family you know and you, you <laughs> see only these weird characters there's conflict in your story there's been there, there's been woundedness uh, but here's my thing every one of us interprets our story. you interpret your life. And when you tell your story about your life, you, you tell it in the context of your interpretation. And so you, you have interpretations about events. Something bad happens. You say that was a horrible thing to happen. And you explain why it was horrible. And on. you have all of these interpretations. Proverbs 16, verse 2. Very interesting verse. It says, All the man's ways seem innocent, the truth of the matter is, is that when we look at our interpretation, we look at at how our life is unfolding, we think everything that's happened in our life, we justify it and see it from our interpretation. In high school and college English, when we give books to students to read, you notice what we always do, we have everybody read it and then we get together and we discuss the interpretations, what the author is saying, what's he he trying to uh, communicate, what's being accomplished, how do you interpret these events, and we do that always in a community. Why? Because oftentimes we misinterpret things. And by the way, there's a reason for that, the reason we misinterpret. Uh, As an educator... I know that by the age of six, the, the the data is out there to show this, a six-year-old child at the age of six has set 80% of their beliefs that they will hold in their entire life. All of you beyond six. Since six, only added about 20% of your beliefs to yourself. That 80% of them were set by the time you were six. By the way... And six-year-olds and younger are all concrete thinkers. They see things black and white. It's all concrete. They don't know nuanced interpretation. And that's why this old saying is so true. Children are wonderful observers and horrible interpreters. Because they see things and observe them, but their interpretation is often completely wrong. And that's why moms and dads will, you know, in in talking with their kids, go, wait a minute, that's not true, and they try and correct it. Here's the thing, of your own beliefs, right now, the majority of them were set when you were a concrete thinker. And you hear this from people when they say, that feels true. When you hear that statement about something in their life, this feels true, that is code for, you learned that when you were a concrete thinker. And the feeling of truth is what has locked it in for you that makes it true. The young man I worked with in Kenya, um, He um, in, in, in Kenya when you take your exams in high school to go to university, only about, uh, When we were in Kenya, only about uh, 5% would qualify for university. And the reason for that was they didn't have the space for them. So you would take the top 5% of high school graduates to go to university. Of those who start first grade, one-tenth of 1% go to university. So it's really, really competitive. This young man had taken his exam and had not qualified for university. He had misqualified by one point. And he was angry at God. And he came to me and said, I'm really mad at God. I said, why? He said, because when I started high school, I prayed. And I said, God, you got me to high school. I don't want to waste this time. I want to use it so I can go on to university. And he had been involved in the Christian Union had been in Bible studies because, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do. And I want you to help me get to university. And he disqualified by one point. And he was really angry at God. And I've learned that when people are really angry, it's because they want something. And they're not getting it. So I said, so what did you want? He said, I wanted to go to university. I understand. A lot of people want to go to university. I'm trying to figure out what do you really believe and think. So I've learned that you always go back to family. I said, tell me about your family. He said, well, I've got a single mom. She had me when she was 13 years old. She got pregnant in Minnesota, in Kenya, and gave birth to me. I said, wow, do you know your dad? No, never met my dad, never, don't even know who he is. I said, well, how are things with your mom? Well, it was hard. Single moms raising kids is always hard. I said, did you ever have any disappointing things happen with your mom? He said, oh, yeah. I said, what? He said, when I was four years old. Really? Four? I don't remember much of anything before. What, what happened at four? And he said, well, my mom got really mad one day. Really mad. And she yelled at me. And she said, I hate you. You ruined me. Whoa. I said uh, did that hurt he said oh yeah that hurt a lot and I've learned that pain is an amazing teacher when we get hurt we always learn something here's the problem most of the time what we've learned is not true we learned. But we learned it as kids, as concrete thinkers, and as an adult looking back, as an adult talking with him, I said, you know, uh, your mom said things she shouldn't have said. Not a very good mom there. That is not what moms should be communicating to their kids. Plus, if you look at the statement, that is not true. You didn't ruin her life. You had no <coughs> choice in the matter. Did you notice that we called these kids illegitimate children? I I find that so repulsive. The kid had no choice in the matter. We should call them illegitimate parents. But the parents don't want to hear that. They want to be able to pass the blame on to somebody else, as this 17-year-old mom did to her 4-year-old child. I hate you. You ruined my life. What was fascinating is this young man came to an interpretation of life and the reason he wanted to go to college was he thought, if I can go to college and get my degree, my mother will finally love (coughs) me. That is, that's that's an interesting line of thinking, but I'm not so sure that's what's going to win your mother's love. But he has that interpretation. The reason I say this, all of our ways seem innocent to him. His going to college to him seemed like a noble and right thing to do. The problem was, is that it was a demand before God. You will get me to college. And it's the question of, you know, whose servant is who? Is God your servant or are you God's servant? And his interpretation made it God is my servant and I just tell God what he needs to do, and then God's supposed to come through because I do what God expects me. Ladies and gentlemen, we all misinterpret things in our lives. And that without help and without growing in that, we will continue to misinterpret things. Third is this. We all have a trouble seeing our blind spots because we lie to ourselves and because we misinterpret, we have blind spots. I, I don't know how many of you have been to weddings where the couple going down the aisle, 80 or 90% of the people in the uh, church are all going, this is not good. <laughs> uh, I've been to about three or four of them. And um, uh, one of them, their marriage lasted a month, and uh, the next two lasted less than six months. And everybody, everyone, looking at the two of them, went, this is not good. Parents saw that it was not good. They communicated it's not good. They have done everything they can. And why is that? Because we all have white spots. We all have places that we don't see clearly. I, I've got Proverbs 14, 8 up there, but I really uh, should have made that Proverbs 20, verse 5, which says, The purposes of a man's heart are like deep waters. But a man of understanding can draw them out. Here's why we need the people of God. Because there are things in our lives that we don't see clearly that we need somebody else who has a more objective view to be able to reflect to us and go, I think you're deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself. I think this is not a good thing. Robert." Excuse me. Proverbs says, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. And that's the problem for us. When, when we hear things from people that we don't like hearing, we tend to lose them as friends. I don't want you to be my friend anymore. I don't want to hear the truth. And these are the things that I think that when you go, what is it the community does that I cannot do for myself? men and women, I don't think these three things we can do for ourselves. I think we can grow to be able to do that, but it requires the discipline of a community to help us grow, to be able to do these things for ourselves. So let me break some of these things down. What is it that a group uh, as a discipline can do? If you get a group of people together, here are some things that I would encourage you to think about that you could do in group that will help you in those three things. First is this, it's tell and remember that we should know each other's stories. It is amazing to me how little we know about each other. Um, With my seniors at school, in my senior Bible class, I've gotten to the point that I ask the seniors to tell their story to their classmates. Um, this is a terrifying thing to the high school seniors. They're terrifying. And I find that instructive. Why are we terrified to tell people our stories? Partly because we've learned in life that people are not safe. I learned it in third grade at Mother of Sorrow. I was on the playground, it was around Christmas time. Kid ran up to me and said, John, what's your favorite Christmas carol? I said, Silent Night. And he said, why? And I said, because it makes me cry. (laughs) And he turned around and went running across the playground yelling out, John cries at Christmas carols. (laughs) And said it over and over and over again this little third grader stood there and looked at that and went, you know, I'm not sharing that ever again. (laughs) Which is what we all heard. You know, that if I share what's really going on, people will make fun of it, will attack me, I don't want to share it. I think one of the things in the discipline of community is that we need to know each other's stories. And we need to be free to share them. Um, Several years ago, um, uh, this is 20, 20 years ago, um, <laughs> at my age, 27. <laughs> so, I was at church and there was a guy in church that I had met who had been in the Air Force during World War II. And I'm a history major. I love talking to people who, you know, from years past have been in things. So I invited this guy out for breakfast. And I, um, we, we got together and I said, so my understanding is you were in the Air Force in the Second World War. He said, yes. I said, which theater? Were you in the Atlantic or in the Pacific theater? He said, in the Pacific. I said, what did you do in the Air Force? He said, I was a crew member on a B-29. Bombers that bombed uh, Japan. Wow. I said, how many missions did you go on? He said, 14. Now, I know enough about history to know that bomber crews, during World War II, you had to go on 20 missions. And at 20 missions, you were free to go home. The US said, if you can survive 20 missions in a bomber, you've, you've made your contribution to the war. <coughs> he only did 14. So that piqued my curiosity. And I said, um, uh, why only 14? He said, well, our 14th mission, we had a little problem. I said, well, what 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 happened? He said we were getting ready to go out. It was going to be, you know, several hundred of us bombers flying together to Japan. And our regular navigator on our ship fell sick. And we had to get a replacement guy. And the replacement guy came out and we all went, oh no. This guy was cocky. He he didn't have a hat. He didn't wear long sleeves. He was short-sleeved. He was full of himself. They don't have any of those guys in the military, do <laughs> and this guy was proud and arrogant and told the guys how great a navigator he was. They all kept their mouths shut. They got in their plane, took off, flew to Japan. Night bombing raid. They went on Moss together and dropped their bombs. And then, as the tactics were, as soon as they dropped their load, they split up, broke apart, and flew back home. Well flying back home, this guy got them lost. He did not know where he was at. They flew for six hours over the Pacific, frantically radioing, trying to get in touch with anybody, completely out of radio contact, and they ran out of gas. And the bomber came down, they all bailed, they all survived. And they got in one wrap. Seven guys. And um, they were at sea 62 days in a seven-day raft. The, um, the navigator, the cocky guy, he went insane. Go hat, with the sun out on the ocean. It, it fried him, And he went insane. And this guy said, you know, there were many times I could have easily killed that baby. for what he did to us. 62 days later, they were rescued by a merchant ship. He came on board, he weighed 87 pounds. He was two pounds away from death weight after 62 days. And he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, I have never wanted to fly over an ocean ever since. And I went, I understand. See, if we don't know one another's stories, we don't understand us. And that one of the things and the discipline of community is to take the discipline to tell our stories to one another. But we're terrified to do it. We're terrified to let people know our story. And so Thessalonians Paul brings out this point that he loved those people so much that they were delighted not only to share the gospel but also their lives as well, because they become dear to us. It is important that within the discipline of community, there is trust, there is love, and an openness to share. Second, one of the things within community, in, in the discipline, is to ponder, to reflect, to think, have curiosity. It's not enough just to know the story. It's when you know the story to start trying to connect the dots, to ask questions of people. What did you learn from that? What is your view of yourself? It is coming up with these questions of how we start to address people with things. I was at a party uh, many years ago. Um, It was a social evening. Uh, party, and I was talking to a guy, 6'5", about 280, can bench-press 500 pounds. He was a former linebacker at ASU. Big, big. And I had this skinny little green pole here talking to him, and we're talking about life. And I asked him about his family, his his family growing up. Because we have been talking about football and why he was so out of control on the football field and so to make it curious, let's ask a question. And so uh, I asked him about his, his his dad, and he told me it was amazing. And this, he said uh, my dad was uh, not a very nice man. I said, What do you mean? He said my dad physically abused me. Not sexually, just being. The reason that he was this, and I thought, Wow, I'm thinking. Oh, I wonder what he learned when he was being physically abused by his dad. So I asked him, what do you think you learned from that? It was amazing. He'd been open and ready to talk, and there was a change in his countenance. and he became very stern, and he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, we are not going there. Oh. Okay. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> By the way, that is what is normal for most of us. And to be in the discipline of a community where people can have stack and you're free to go there is life-changing. Because the damage done to us needs to be looked at. Um, in the movie Braveheart, my favorite scene in Braveheart, it's after the battle, the initial battle, And there's this old Scottish dad who's got a son who's a behemoth of a man. And the old Scottish dad, he's he's a crusty old fellow, but he's tough and he's strong. And he's the one who actually holds up the gate of this fortress. Uh, It's, you know, out on the wilderness, it's a a wood fortress, and it's got a wood gate. He holds the gate up so the soldiers can run in to attack the castle. And an archer shoots at him while he's holding up the gate, and he takes an arrow in the shoulder. gets wounded. And he's so tough that he drops the gate, breaks the shaft off, and proceeds to fight for the next several hours. (laughs) You know, uh, he's a real warrior. But he's got an arrow stick now. And they go to this scene at night where they have to address his wound. Now here's the thing. You know, if you're in the military and that kind of thing, and somebody gets wounded, you can say, bummer, that's really bad, you've got that wound. Hope you um, you have a nice day and the rest of your life. And what you're basically doing is consigning the guy to death. Because an unaddressed wound will rot, will get infected, and it'll kill you. Why is that true in the physical, but not true of us, socially um, or relationally? (coughs) The wounds we perceive need to be addressed. They don't heal themselves, and so in this scene, he's sitting by a fire, because it, with the medical technology of that day, with an arrow, it's barbed. you have to push the arrow all the way through the shoulder. So now you've got a clean wound all the way through to get the arrow out. You don't pull it out this way and leave the arrow in you, that'll certainly kill it, so you have to push it through. And in those days, they do. You push it through, there's blood, and there's the chance of infection. And they had learned how to deal with both of those. You take a, an iron rod about the same size as the arrow shaft, and you put it in the fire until it's red hot. And once you shove it through, you stick the rod iron, red-hot iron into the wound, it cauterizes the wound, stops the bleeding, and it kills all of the germs. Imagine what it's like to stick a red-hot iron into your shoulder. Uh, that would not be fun. As a famous line in a movie I love says, Do you think the healing of the wound is as painful as the wound itself? Well, that's an amazing question. I think it's true. We tend to want to not have any more pain, and yet so it's a it, it's a fun scene because the guy's got the Who's got a wrought iron? He knows that when he sticks this thing in this guy's shoulder, this guy is going to be so mad at him, because he's hurting him, he's going to deck it. And he doesn't want to get his jaw broken. So he's sitting there going, here, he hands it to another guy, said, I'll help hold him down. And the next guy goes, No, here, you do it. And they're passing this thing around because nobody wants to do it. It's a great illustration of what is true of us. Naturally without the discipline we don't want to address the woman's partner we're too afraid if I address it they'll get mad at me and punch me and that is the thing about women pondering and reflecting and thinking requires that we make it safe that what we're about is trying to bring about healing for the person not to just poke the injured bear. And so this this idea from Paul where he goes, we continually remember before God, our our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. Paul remembers these people, sees what they're doing, he evaluates it, assesses it, talks to them. Third, what, is, what does a group do as a discipline? Third is to confess. Uh, I grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, and part of the Roman Catholic tradition is the priest hears confession. And when I became a follower of Jesus and I got around the Protestants, what I heard often was, you know, you Catholics go to a priest to be forgiven. We go directly to God. Amen. We can go directly to God. First uh, John 1, John 1 to con- confess our sins God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins but what I wasn't told early on and I didn't know early on and when I found it I started asking my Protestant friends "Then how do you deal with James 5 because James 5 commands us that we are to confess our sins to one another and again what I found amongst evangelicals and Protestants is that we don't confess our sins to one another. That, that is one of those things that we don't do well unless we learn the discipline of how do I confess my sins? Several months ago, I was at a board meeting at Desert. We were in the midst of um, working through some things, and uh, we had gotten a donation, and I had gone ahead and taken some of the money of the donation to use on replacing the parking lot lights at the high school with LED lights. And um, we were talking with the board, and we got to the thing about this donation. And one of the board members said, I think we need to take the whole donation and do something with it. And the board was talking about that. And I didn't say anything to them about that I had already spent a portion of it doing the LDD life. Why? Because I'm scared. Um, they're going to read me out for making the decision that I have crossed by then, And so it goes on and on, and this is about 20 minutes into it, and I'm sitting there going, I am just letting this discussion go without letting the truth come out. What's going on in, in me? And it was my shame and my fear and wrestling with it, and I finally said, Dave, we yes, got to stop. I've sinned against you. And I proceeded to tell him, I had kept quiet what I had done and said it was out of my fear and my shame that I was keeping something from you. Because in my own mind I started to think, you know, what if we leave this meeting and I haven't confessed? And they then proceed to go on with life and a week down find out that I've put these lights in. How am I going to explain it two weeks later? That's much more difficult to explain <coughs> than right at the point. We do not like to confess our sins. It is a discipline we mm-hmm. need to learn. Because guess what? Another encouraging verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 24, 26. A man's malice can be concealed by his lips, but his wickedness is made known in an assembly. Here's the fun thing. As soon as you bring sinners together, over time, guess what's going to show up? <laughs> They're sitting. Navigator training programs, when I was with the NAVs, we'd go for six weeks to a camp. It was always in the third week that the sin showed up.
2: <laughs>
0: Everybody was happy and wonderful the first two two and and a half weeks. That third week, somebody said something or did something, and they got offended. And then you were dealing with, how are we going to deal with the sin? Guess what? Sin shows up in a company of people. And when you have the discipline of community, guess what's going to happen? You are going to sin against each other. And there is the need for confession. The the, the place where you can confess your sins to each other. By the way, as they know your story... As they've pondered your story, they're going to see patterns in your life of how you protect yourself and how you hide, and they're going to confront you and call you to repentance. Sounds excitingly fun, doesn't it? (laughs) Everybody wants to sign up for that. But look at what James says. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be
2: healed.
0: He's not talking about physical deformities here. He's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about the healing of your soul. See, what we've done as believers is to say the gospel, that Christ died on the cross so that we can be forgiven our sins and we can go to heaven. And then you look at how we've been wounded and hurt and how we've been uh, broken by life. And we say, well, it says in Revelations that when we get to heaven, he'll wipe away all tears. So between now and heaven, you just got to suck it up and you know, <laughs> get, get through the, the pain of life because there is no hope in the gospel for that. That's a lie. Isaiah says, by his wounds we have been healed. Now, that's been misinterpreted to think that you can just pray and your physical infirmities will go away. But in in Isaiah, the the passage that Jesus read in Nazareth is that that proclaimed to them that I have brought good news for the poor, freedom for the captives. And the passage in Isaiah says, I have come to bind up the broken hearted. It is part of the gospel. that God wants to heal us. It won't be complete and everything done between now and heaven. Just like we will not be completely righteous and perfect before we get that. But we grow in it. And one of the aspects of healing begins with the, the, the discipline of confession. You can heal relationships, heal yourself. And last is this, forgiveness and love. Colossians says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with each other um, and forgiving whatever grievances you have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave This is the fourth thing that I see in the discipline of community (laughs) that is needed that we learn to forgive one another whatever transgression has gone on. To offer forgiveness to one another gives each of us a taste of grace. We talk about grace a lot and we focus on the grace that the Lord has given to us. But we actually can demonstrate that grace to each other by how we forgive. How we love one another. Just as Christ loved us. If all we do is look at the Lord and what he's done and we don't turn and go out, Jesus had a few things to say about that. That are very unpleasant words about us being able to forgive. And this is where within community naturally we don't forgive but in the discipline of community we can grow in learning how to forgive one another and ourselves because much of the issue for us is that we don't forgive ourselves for what we've done and so learning to forgive learning to confess learning to think and ponder and learning to hear one another's stories, I think, are things that do not come naturally. That it is joining in a community in discipline that we can grow to learn how to do what we cannot Please, would you bring your team back up? Our series on disciplines started last week with the discipline of solitude and silence. And Chris said It It is when we sit quietly before the Lord and we hear what the Lord says about us that we can hear the truth from God as to who we are. By the way, armed with that, we can come into community with one another and offer who we are. We don't have to pose. We don't have to pretend. We can be who God has said we are, with one another and practice these disciplines. Next week, we're going to look at the the spiritual discipline of ministry, of service. And it is that as we grow in community and our understanding of God, that we are now equipped to enter into the world, a broken world, and reflect Christ and offer grace And preach the gospel by our life and with our minds. So these disciplines are all interconnected in what God wants to do in growing us up. As the um, worship team plays um, and we take time to worship, um, we have the communion table open and available, and we invite anyone who was a follower of Jesus, to come partake? We do this. We eat and drink in remembrance of what God has done for us. It is spiritual food. It is the food of God in Christ to minister to our souls and help us. So you're freely welcome to take care.